It's good to be together. It's great to uh, see you guys again. I mean that every week. I, I feel that legitimately. It's good to be together. Um, before I begin, I feel like I have to clarify something. Last week, I mentioned that it's important to keep your eye on the road when you're riding a motorcycle. I was just trying to use this as an illustration. I did not get in an accident of any kind when I was riding my motorcycle. I had like five people come and ask me, are you all right? Did something happen while you were gone? It was no, there was no problem. It was just a point uh, that struck me as I was riding my motorcycle. Anyways, glad we cleared the air there. Um, we're continuing this morning. If you're here for the first time this summer, we've been doing a series looking at the different characters in the Old Testament, looking at either their whole life or just a part of their life. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Moses. And Moses uh, lived a long life. We're going to be looking at just two chapters in the book of Exodus, chapter two, uh, sorry, two to four. So looking at Exodus chapter two to four. So I'm going to start by uh, reading in Exodus one, actually, which sets us up for uh, what's going on. And so I'm reading from Exodus chapter one, verse eight. It says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities as for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh, labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Then, in verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. In chapter 2, it says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent for her female slave to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrews' babies, Hebrew babies, she said. Then her sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word to us this morning. And so we have this amazing birth story of Moses. The first few months of his life, uh, should have been taken from him, but he was saved through this miracle, this act of desperation from a mother 
because this was a desperate time for the Israelites. They were suffering greatly. They were oppressed. And not just for a little bit. It had been generations of oppression now. And the, the question that probably would have been going through the mind of the Israelites at this time is, God, where are you? Where are you? You made promises to us. Don't you hear our cries? Do your promises mean anything, God? Have you forgotten about us? And they're waiting and waiting and waiting on God. Waiting on God can be very, very hard. When God's timing and our timing do not line up, our faith can be stretched significantly. And one of the principles that we see in the story of the Exodus story is that God, God is always working in our waiting. He's always bringing us somewhere. No matter how much it might feel like God has abandoned us, no matter how it might feel like God is not listening, like he's forgotten, God is always working in our waiting. And so we're going to be looking at the first two-thirds of Moses' life this morning. Uh, We're told in Deuteronomy 34 that Moses lived to be 120 years old. And we're told in Joshua 5 that the Israelites were in the wilderness for about 40 years. And so from the time they left Egypt to the time Moses died, it was about 40 years, which puts Moses around 80 years old when he left Egypt. And we know from Acts chapter 7 that he was 40 years old when he left Egypt the first time to flee Egypt. And so we kind of fast forward quickly over the first 40 years of Moses' life. But now we're going to be looking at the next 40 years. And so really all of this, I, I was kind of struck by this during my preparation. I just think of the back, when, the, when I think of the story of the Exodus and all the wilderness, I think of that as the majority of Moses' life. But actually that was the last third of Moses' life. God had been leading and preparing Moses for the first two-thirds of his life just to bring him this point of leadership where he would be used. Now, people were living a bit longer back then. If we were to put that to today's terms, let's say you lived to 90 years old, it wasn't until Moses was 60 that God began to really use him. So I think that's an encouragement for us this morning. It doesn't matter where you are at in your life. It doesn't matter how old you are. There is more that God wants to do to you, do through you and in you. So we're looking at the first two-thirds of Moses' life. And uh, Moses is going to go on to become one of the most significant figures in all of Scripture. He interacted with God. He communed with God, with God uniquely. There are few people in all of history that had, was able to con- have conversations with God in the way that Moses did. And God, was, God used Moses for the great exodus, the delivery of Israel from Egypt. This hugely significant moment in scripture and human history and it really becomes a reference point of god's faithfulness and his commitment to his people they're always looking back and seeing this is what god done he has done he cannot have forgotten about us so moses is going to become this significant person in scripture and therefore in human history and this is how his life begins this is how his life begins and so it says sometime in moses's upbringing, he becomes aware that he is not Egyptian, that he is Hebrew. And we know this because the story picks up and says that Moses went to, out to where his people were and watched them in their hard labor. 
And so sometime in the first 40 years of his life, he realizes, I'm not an Egyptian. I've been adopted. My people are actually the ones that are working as slaves in this empire that I help oversee. And you can just imagine have, realizing that those people that are living as slaves are actually my people. What that would do to you as you begin to realize your position in life and what's being done to those that really are your family. And so we have every reason to believe that this actually begins to fill Moses with anger because he looks over and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he does something about it. He steps in and he actually kills the Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian. And he thinks he has gotten away with it. He says he looked around to make sure no one was looking. So the next day he comes back again. He's looking over his people working. And he sees two Hebrews fighting this time. And he goes to them and he says, why are you fighting with your fellow Hebrew? You know, he's just realizing he has his family. He doesn't get now when he sees his family fighting with each other. Why are your fellow Hebrews? Why are you fighting with each other? And the men who don't know that Moses is Hebrew, they think that he's just a Egyptian uh, overseer. They don't look of him as his kin. They say, what do you, what do you, for you to judge us? Didn't you yourself just kill an Egyptian? And so this fills Moses with fear because he thought he had gotten away with it. He thought he'd acted out in anger, but he was in the clear. But people are talking about it. He's committed murder and the Israelites know. And his, his uh, fear is justified because actually soon Pharaoh becomes aware of what happened. And Pharaoh, when he hears of this, wants Moses killed because he's betrayed the family. And so Moses does what most of us do when we're filled with fear. Moses runs away. Moses runs away to a, a place called Midian. And if you look on the map here, you can see that there, there's, uh, where the circle is at the top, that's where Moses would have been staying. That's where the, kind of this, where the headquarters of Egypt was, even though the empire was much larger. And so he, so he flew to Midian, which is approximately 350 kilometers away. So he doesn't just kind of leave the outskirts of the city. He gets away. He runs as far away as he can. And he hides in this area called Midian. And right away when he gets there, there is, uh, he goes to the well to get water. And there's these sisters and there's seven of them. And they're um, caring for the sheep of their father's flock. And there's a bit of an issue around some other shepherds. And they're kind of um, being protective over the water. And Moses steps in and he protects these women from the shepherds. And so they like this and they invite him back to their house. And it's here where Moses meets for, his, for the first time his future father-in-law, Jethro. Because Moses would go on to marry one of these girls, Zipporah. And they would begin to have a family there. And we're, we're told at this point that Moses was living in Midian for a very long time. And so he flees Egypt around when he's 40 years old, and then he's now living in Midian for a long time, probably approximately 40 years. And during that long period, it says in Exodus 2, verse 23, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so God's hearing his people cry out in Egypt, and he's got Moses and Midian. And Moses has now taken on the father's the family business. He's now working as a shepherd out in the field. Gone are the days where he's living it up in the palace of Egypt. Egypt now Moses is out in the field working as a shepherd. And we have every reason to believe that he loved his new life. But it's during this time when he's out in the field that Moses has an encounter with God. For the first time in his life, Moses has a profound encounter with God. And I want to show a, a video clip here. And this is not, this is not live footage. I looked. I couldn't find any, unfortunately, from this. However, this, I think, is one of the best imaginings of what this encounter would have looked like. So let's watch this on the screen. Here I am. Take the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground. Who are you? I am that I am. I don't understand. I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Land flowing with milk and honey. 
so unto Pharaoh, I shall send you. Me? Who am I to lead these people? They'll never believe me. They won't even listen. I shall teach you what to say. Let my people go! But I was their enemy. I was the prince of Egypt, the son of the man who slaughtered their children. You've, you've chosen the wrong messenger. How, how can I even speak to these people? Who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Did not I? Now go! It's this encounter with God that changes, changes Moses' life forever. God gives Moses this enormous call that you are going to be the one that goes to face Pharaoh. You're going to be the one that actually delivers the Israelites from their slavery. <clears throat> and it's this conversation between God and Moses. I was present, presented in chapter 3 to 4, verse 17, that gives us insight into what's going on in Moses' heart. And as we look at Moses, I think we'll see a lot of ourselves in this conversation. And so not every detail of that conversation is in that video clip. But I just want to cover kind of five responses that Moses has to God and what God says back to Moses. And you see in chapter 3, verse 11, the first thing that Moses says when he has this encounter with God is, Who am I that I should go? Who am I that I should go? The first thought when he pops, that pops into Moses' mind when he encounters God is that I'm not the right person for this job. I'm not, not the right one for this job. What is behind that thought? I would be willing to bet that there's some guilt behind that thought. That he's the prince of Egypt. He's the one that's been oppressing his people. He's an outsider. I'm not the one that's been with my family, the Israelites, through this time of oppression. I've been the one oppressing them. I just murdered someone. Filled with guilt. Everyone knows it. 
And God's response to this question of Moses is simply, I will be with you. I will be with you. He doesn't actually comfort Moses by telling him, Moses, Moses, you're amazing. You're so great. They're going to love you. Trust me. They're just, they're just going to love you. He doesn't downplay the moral failures of Moses. He doesn't comfort him with, you know what? It wasn't that big of a deal. It's okay. What he says to Moses is this. I will be with you. I will be with you. And so Moses in verse 13 says, but who am I, what, who am I going to say sent me when people ask? Who do I say sent me when people asked? And Moses isn't just asking, hey, uh, when people ask me their name, your name, what am I supposed to say? Can you just clarify that for me? Can I just remind them that you're the God of their ancestors so that in case they forgot? No, what Moses is wondering is, on whose authority am I going to be saying these things? Whose authority, whose name am I actually going to go and declare these things to Israel and to Pharaoh? And God's response is this. Tell them, I am who I am sent you. Tell them that the God of their father's father's father, he's the one that's sending you. He's saying, tell them that the eternal one has sent you. The one whose name is not dependent on any other name before it. That's the one who's sending you. You know, when you look around, you can look at anything in this world, and we can't find anything that doesn't require something before it prior to exist, to cause that new thing to come into existence. You can't look at a tree, you can't look at a rock, you can't look at a person or an animal, and there, you can't find anything where the reason for that, there must be a reason prior before that thing, for that thing to have come into existence. And if you think about that logically, that means that there must be an infinite regression back into history forever and ever. If everything that existed required something before it to exist, we must come to that conclusion unless we agree that there is something that does not need a cause to exist. Unless there is something that did not need to be created in order to exist. Unless there is an uncaused cause, a non-dependent. If that thing exists then everything actually makes sense. If it doesn't, then there's just this infinite regression of things needing to be created. And so when you ask the question, yeah, but who made God? You're missing the point. To miss the point that in order for there to be anything at all, there must be something that did not need to be created in order to exist. And here God is saying to Moses, I am that thing. I am that thing. I am who I am. I'm eternal. And when I say that the words I'm going to ask you, and people ask, whose authority are you speaking in? That's whose authority you're speaking in, Moses. The eternal one. And so Moses' response to this in 4 verse 1 is, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? What's behind that statement? What's behind that question? Fear of failure. I'm not going to be able to do it, God. And we know that this is Moses' motivation for that question because the next thing out of his mouth in verse 10 is, Pardon your servant, but I have never been eloquent. I'm not good at this, God. 
I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses is scared that he's going to fail because his focus is on and solely on his inadequacy. And God responds to this in two ways. The first thing that God says when Moses says, but what if they don't listen to me, is this. I'm going to change their minds. Moses says, I'm not good. I'm not great at speaking. How am I going to be compelling? How am I going to convince them? And God's response is, I will change their minds. It's not your job to to accomplish what I'm asking you to do. It's actually my job. But the second thing that that God says back to Moses is, but who made your mouth, Moses? Who makes people speak or be quiet? It's me. And then he says, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what you want to say. And so it's interesting when, when, and God, or when Moses is doubting himself, when he's feeling insufficient, the response of God to that is, I'm the one that's going to accomplish it, and I'm the one that's going to teach you what to say. Whenever we focus on too much, too much on either one of those answers, we get into trouble. If we focus too much on he's the one that's going to accomplish it, it leads us to inactivity. So it leads us to a lack of passion. It leads us to a lack of, of uh, immediacy. But if we focus too much on he's going to be the one to teach us how to do it, then when we're doing really well, then we're going to get arrogant because look how good we're doing. And when we're doing really poorly, we're going to feel crushed because look how bad we're doing. It's, it, when, we, when we tie these things together, that it's God who's going to be the one that changes their mind, and I'm going to be the one that teaches you how to do it. When we keep those things tied together, that's where we need to be, and that's what God's response to Moses is. In all circumstances today, we must hear both of these words of God, that I will accomplish this for you, and I will teach you what to do. And so after all of this, after all of these responses and interactions, Moses' final response to God is, please send somebody else. But God does not let Moses get out of it. God says, but I've given you your brother Aaron, who is an elegant speaker. He will speak on your behalf, but I will tell you what he is supposed to say. Moses says, get me out of here. I don't want this job that you're signing me up for. And God says, sorry, you're going to be a part of it. But you're actually not doing it alone. You're going to need someone else. And the two of you will need each other. And none of you will be able to do it on your own. But together, you're going to be able to do it. But together, neither of you are actually going to get the glory for what's happening. And so this is where Moses' conversation with God ends. And he goes back to his family, and he says, Family, we're moving to Egypt. And this chapter of Moses' life concludes. In verse chapter, chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. And so when you, when you look back on the conversation of Moses, when you look back and kind of hear Moses' response, it would be easy to interpret these responses as humility. 
If you just hear the statements like, oh, who am I? Who am I to be able to do this thing? Or, you know what, I, don't, I just don't have the right authority to be able to say this or to do that. Or, you know, people aren't going to listen to me because, you know what, I'm just not very good at speaking. Or, or this statement, I'm sure, you know what, I'm sure there's a better person for this job than me. I'm sure that there's a better person for this job than me. You can hear those statements and think, wow, Moses is a really humble guy. He does not think too highly of himself. That, and it, it's great. But here's what we see in, in Moses, and I see this in my own life too, that self-focus, which is pride, very often disguises itself as humility. That actually one of the biggest ways pride expresses itself in your life is through humility, or what appears to be humility. You see, it's a good thing to recognize our own weaknesses only when those weaknesses lead us to a place where we're finding our strength somewhere else. It's good to dwell on your weaknesses so that your weaknesses lead you to a place where you're finding your strength in someone else. But when we just dwell on our weaknesses, we never actually move beyond ourselves. We're actually self-focusedly focused on how weak we are. And our mind does not actually go anywhere else as to where and how where we can get strength in other places. When we look at ourselves and never beyond that, you will either always feel weak and just be discouraged all the time and have self-doubt. I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm so discouraged. I fail over and over again. And that is a crushing thought. And, and that will just beat you over and over again through your life as you find yourself bumping up against your weaknesses and never going beyond that. Or what happens on the other side of it is we look at ourselves and we think falsely, I'm pretty strong. I, my, we perceive a false strength in ourselves and then actually leads us to a place of arrogance. And look how great things are going. Oh, that's not going well. It must be that person's fault. It must be that thing's fault. It's only, it's only when we actually can dwell on our weaknesses, but it doesn't stop there. It leads us to something else. And Moses' biggest problem in his encounter with God, and what actually Moses struggled with his entire life, and what actually led to his death, was that Moses struggled with looking past himself. God was right in front of him saying, Look how strong I am. I am the eternal one. I'm going to be with you, Moses. And the thought that Moses just couldn't get over. I mean, he, he did in many ways. Many ways. And there's lots, uh, there's this, Moses is good for us in many ways. But what was primary in his heart, as we see in this interaction, is that he couldn't look past himself. It's interesting how many of these same questions are actually posed to Jesus throughout his life, or by Jesus. And to see Jesus' different responses. Jesus was continually asked where his authority came from. Where does your authority? And Jesus responded, always, my authority comes from my Father. Jesus was asked once what words he was saying. And Jesus says, I don't speak my own words. I say only what I hear my Father telling me. There is a moment just before Jesus' death 
when he asks a question that is very similar to Moses, he says, he says, is there any other way? Or maybe another way to put it is, is there any other person that can do this? But Jesus' sentence didn't stop there like Moses' did. Jesus went on to say, is there any other way? But if there isn't, I'm willing. Send me. And so Jesus, in many ways, perfectly performs where Moses failed. And Jesus shows us what it's actually like and how in our humanity we're supposed to relate to God. But more than that, Jesus actually goes beyond that. In John 8, 58, Jesus is being, they're questioning, questioning, who are you, who are you? And Jesus has this remarkable response, which is probably the clearest uh, moment when Jesus asserts that he himself is God. It says, very truly, I say unto you, that before Moses, before Abraham was born, I am. That Jesus actually makes the same claim that God did in front of Moses, that I am. And it's the I am's final act on earth, his final act on earth, that actually gives us freedom to look beyond ourselves. That his final act was, laying down his life. That he didn't come to someone else and say, now I'm going to go do this, for, go this I'm going to do this and you're going to do it for me. The I am finally says, now here's the final solution. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you. And Jesus' final words to us before he goes is that I will always be with you. I will always be with you. We will stay stuck in our self-focus until we can lift our eyes up and see Jesus. We can see him as the I am. We can see him as the one laying down his life for us. We can hear his words to us saying, I'm with you. And it's there and only there where we actually find the freedom to move beyond ourselves. That our weaknesses don't just stay weaknesses and we get stuck in a cycle of discouragement or pride where we can be fine with our weaknesses and weaknesses actually turn to strength. Because God is strength. And so let's pray. So Father, thank you that you are unchanging. That as we read this story, when we hear these events that happened thousands of years ago, we have faith that you are saying these same things to us. That we know that you are the eternal one. That your promise to be with us has not changed. That just like you looked and heard the cries of the people, God, you hear our cries today. And that you've delivered us. And so, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us and that you've acted. And so, God, would you help us to look beyond ourselves? Would you help, would you help us to beyond, beyond self-focused weaknesses? But would you help us to see you? And as we see you, would you help us to lift our eyes beyond ourselves to find the freedom to to live as you've called us to live. And so we need your help, God. Would you move in our hearts here this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name.